Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Uh, We are in the fourth week of our Advent series, which this week was the, or this year was the Four Mothers of Jesus, and this is John Fouché. When I look back through this year, and the, I have a lot of things that I'm super thankful for this year. There aren't many that I'm more thankful for than God bringing John Fouché on staff oh, at Oak City Church. Really so, great. John Fouché, ladies and gentlemen. Well, that was nice. <laughs> I feel the same. Um, well, thank you uh, so much for coming today. Uh, today we're going to be uh, covering a, a difficult subject. The subject is PG-13. In the room, I think we're good, but online, uh, you want to keep that in mind as well. Uh, In honor of God and his word, would you please stand? Let us read the excerpt from the genealogy that we've been studying in Matthew chapter 1. Of this long list of the grandparents of Jesus, uh, we read something really quite remarkable in the way it's phrased as well. In Matthew 1 6, it's talking about David. It brings up David. And it says simply, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We are standing in honor that we believe that God's scripture speaks to life. And here it mentions Bathsheba, but not by name, merely by mentioning her husband because her husband was a Gentile, an outsider, that you would have never expect to have been a part of the inside job. And her story uh, is one of the four women that we read here in the genealogy that God did something really unique by using uh, sometimes women that uh, socially uh, were seen out and sometimes women uh, that were uh, incredible stories of uh, redemption, and with Bathsheba, when it appears to be uh, just a very horrible, shameful thing in the end, we end up celebrating her and her contribution to bring us grace. And it's one of those stories that brings up many, many things. Uh, This story really has everything to do with the Me Too movement. It has everything to do with the church tube movement. Y'all might remember the Me Too movement started when Alyssa Milano in 2017 tweeted, if you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write Me Too as a response to this tweet. And that year, it had been used 19 million times, that hashtag, which was an average of 55,000 times a day. Shortly thereafter, Church 2, hashtag T-O-O, also started highlighting abuse in the church. And again, this scripture, the story of Bathsheba and of David, of Uriah, all this has to do with these two things today. What we're going to talk about is what man does first, what we are to do, and what God does, okay? What man does. So let me read to you a little bit of the beginning of the story here from 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. 
And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. This is normally when kings would go out to war, but David stays home. Verse 2. And it happened one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David, look at these verbs and where the responsibility is, sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, is a passive verb, and he lay with her. Now what was she doing? Was she up on top of the rooftop uh, trying to seduce? No. In fact, she was doing the exact opposite. At the end of this verse, it describes she was been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. At the end of her monthly cycle, the God's law uh, encouraged women to, uh, to clean. And so she's bathing herself in obedience to God's law. That's what she's doing. She hasn't provoked this. She wasn't asking for it. But David saw, sent, took, and lay. And then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Here is a man that is described as the man after God's own heart that quickly descends with one glance to sexual assault. And he, is, he uses his power. He's using the messengers uh, to go send for her, to bring her back. He's using his power to do this. This is a rape. And one of the things that is very difficult for us to see is that this godly man descends so quickly. Alistair Begg said that men, the best of men, are men at best. And we got to realize that what man does consistently in Scripture, even our best of men, is sin and sin heinously. And that's what he does here. He neglects his duty. He sexualizes the woman, and I'm calling her that way because only the servants use the word Bathsheba. She is treated as an object. And then uh, he covers up this with sin. When he finds out she's pregnant, he calls for Uriah. He goes, calls, sends a message to his general, Joab, uh, Joab sends back Uriah. Uri David basically asks about the war, and then he says, hey, you know, go home. Uh, be with your wife. Put up your feet. And, uh, and I want you to be able to rest. And, of course, he's trying to set it up to where it would make doubt whether who is the father here. But what actually happens is Uriah doesn't. He goes to the king's door and then stops and spends the night outside the door. The next day he inquires him and says, what's up? Why didn't you go home? And he said, all of, all of our whole nation, all of our warriors, even God is intense. How dare I go and spend the evening with my wife and lay with her when I am called to a duty? The contrast with David is severe. So the next day what he does is he gets Uriah drunk in hopes that he would go home. But he gets drunk, and he's on David's couch 
all night long. And so this is not working. So David said, we've got to cover up my sin. And so what he does is he writes an order to the general and said, hey, when the army is attacking, put them at a vulnerable place. Put them at the, at the most, uh, most vulnerable place next to the city wall and then remove other men so that he would be killed. And so he writes this note, gives it to Uriah, probably uses his seal, and Uriah takes his own death warrant back to the front lines, gives it to Joab. Joab does as he is ordered. And then Joab sends back a messenger to tell him what happened. And the messenger comes to David, and David asks what happens, and he, defined, he, he describes this. And it wasn't just one man. There were many men that lost their lives as a result of this. In verse 23, the messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Watch David justify himself. David sent to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, the general, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another, as if it was an accident. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage them. And the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah was, her husband was dead, and she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. You know, it's pretty obvious uh, that sexual sin has extreme consequences. And what actually happens is, even to the best of people, we start descending several steps to where we get to our place that we would have never chosen at the first. He would have never chosen one of his most loyal soldiers to kill or murder, much less violate God's law. But he saw, he sent, he took, he lay, he covered, and we think he gets away with it. He doesn't, but it looks like he does. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a good reminder to men and women, not just men, but there are consequences to sin. And sometimes sin starts small, but it grows bigger the more we descend into, often unknowingly, into bigger and bigger consequences and choices. And sometimes sin that we never cho chose, like Bathsheba, of course, never seems to have chosen here. This isn't a surprise to us. We, too, sexualize women. One in five searches on the Internet are for porn. Rape is extremely common. One in five women are raped. Uh, furthermore, even with murder, which we're not going to talk as much about, but, um, but in the last two years, it's really jumped. In fact, from 2019 to 2020, murder jumped 30%, the highest jump it's ever made in 100 years. And so this is very relevant to us. Uh, one of my dear friends, my sister, 
uh, has, God has given a ministry in this area, uh, and who would ever have guessed it would happen? Ann, why don't you come on up? Ann Clayton is my sister. She uh, flew in from Dallas uh, last night at 2.20. I will not hold that against you. Um, and use that mic right there. Um, and this is a picture of her family, uh, my brother-in-law and uh, nieces and nephews. And uh, on the, you can see your house looks like it's in disrepair there. Yeah, we need to work on that. Uh, and so she's got five kids uh, and a daughter-in-law and a, and a grandson and one on the way. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how this story relates to your story? It was, uh, is this on? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was uh, back in the 80s. I was a single woman, um, working woman, and living in a second-story apartment. And um, it was just a spring, a very, very warm spring uh, came on. And I, you know, don't want to spend any money turning on the air conditioning, so I had my windows open during the day and at night. And, um, you know, had that going for about a week or so. And then um, I had a good friend named Jamie who was coming in from Kansas City to visit. And um, she was supposed to fly in on a Wednesday. And uh, last minute, she called and said, my plans have changed. I need to fly in a day early. I'm gonna come in on Tuesday. Is that okay? I said, fine, we'll make it work. Uh, picked her up and so forth and, and brought her back to my apartment. Little did I know how divine that scheduling mishap was going to end up meaning for me. Um, anyway, that night we're about to go to bed. I have a tiny little apartment, right? Front room and, and then the bedroom. Um, so I'm, we're about to go to bed and she says, oh, can we close the windows? Cause I have asthma. And I said, fine. And so we uh, closed the windows which um, activated the security in my apartment, which would not have um, been activated if I'd had my way. We went to bed, and within about 30 minutes, the phone rang, and her husband had called from um, Kansas City just to check in. And so she went and sat in the front room on the dark, in the dark on a couch. And while they were talking, she sees the silhouette of a man in our, my window, my front window and uh, looking, peering, and so forth, looking at the window. And uh, she mentions it to her husband. He's like, oh, gosh, get off the phone, call please. And so she hangs up, runs to get me. By that time, we, you know, I come to the front. We can't see anybody there. And we, I don't know why we didn't call the police. But anyway, it was just one of those things. Maybe it was a fluke. Maybe it was somebody looking for, you know, somebody. Went back to bed. Two hours later, the alarm goes off, and it blaring all through the apartment. And, um, you know, I jump up, I'm praying out loud, and she's looking at me like, what are you doing? And I said, Jamie, somebody is in the apartment right now. And it, it took us a, a little bit uh, to kind of get ourselves together, frightened about what we were going to see in the front room, but we finally mustered up the courage, and when we opened up the door, nobody was there. Um, and just kind of stood there, you know, dumbly, um, or stupidly, uh, wondering what in the world was going on. And the alarm turned off, and we talked for a moment, and the door knocked, and it was the police who we had not called. And we were like, wow, how'd you get here? And they said, your neighbor who was coming up the stairs called us. And that neighbor, I did not know him, he lived across the drive on the first floor. And he said, I just was up late and happened to look out my window. And I saw a man climbing on all fours up your stairs. 
He got to the top. He put on a ski mask. And I kept thinking, this has got to be a joke. And then he started to remove your screen. And at that point, I ran it and called the police. When I came back, though he, I didn't see anything, I didn't see a window open, I just saw the screen down. And, I, um, and then shortly thereafter, of course, the police showed up. You could just imagine just the, oh, the chills and the, just the horror we felt of, of what he had just reported. Um, and so we were up the rest of the night. Uh, the next day, I don't know why, but Jamie said, we're staying on the horse, we're spending the night, the, the next night. I don't know why we did, but we did. And we had friends come over. I had a boyfriend at the time, and I met my next-door neighbor, also single, scared. And we stayed, um, we stayed up together into the late hours, but um, the apartment complex had decided to do a stakeout and watch our place. And at midnight, the security guy came in, all kind of Barney Fife, you know, and all freaked out. And he said, there was somebody here. There was a man who was, he was, had come up and come up, crawled up the stairs and then stood at your window and looked while we were inside. Well, I mean, that was three times now in two nights. And um, we just, of course, didn't, didn't sleep that night as well. The next day, a detective came and started asking us about everything that had happened. And... Um, basically revealed that there was a serial rapist on the loose and had been for a couple years who mainly frequented my big apartment complex. And they had been looking for him for quite some time. But more than that, she said that six weeks before I had moved into my apartment, the lady who had lived in my apartment had been raped by, they believe, that same person. So... I, I, I would, you can just imagine just how stunned. I realized at that moment, I think I was next on the list. Mm. And in the moment, you know, the Lord had spared, but I, it, was, it was unreal, the persistence of that person to come back. Um, well, clearly I was out of there. And so I was breaking my leash. So was the girlfriend next door. We decided we would move in together. And, um, and we, moved, we moved away and got out of there. But uh, over the next couple months, there were a couple more assaults in that apartment complex. Uh, and one of them was my new roommate's friend. Uh, she had been attacked. And so um, we just thought it was this never-ending thing. Well, thankfully, a couple months later, uh, the police caught the man he, trying to get into another apartment. He was a pastor of a small church. Um, he was married with, with two small children, and he lived a double life. In fact, everybody said there is no way it could be this guy. And he confessed, and he pled guilty to 15 uh, counts of rape over the last three years and he admitted his bondage to pornography um, stalking women and just determining what their habits were um, and checking for windows and doors to be open before assaulting them um, and he had um, pled guilty but received multiple life sentences and went to prison so in the yeah I would guess I thought yeah so, yeah. so um so, I remember in high school this going down, and uh, thankful that she had her 
friends and her boyfriend that stayed with her the second night. I did nothing. And um, it was, uh, and it's one of the one of my great regrets uh, at that time. And uh, but because somebody did, they saved a lot of pain. And yet at the same time, it also created a story with you and a lot of other women in particular. Uh, that began, you know, uh, who knew, uh, just something that it would keep coming up. Tell us a little bit about how it affected you and the other women that um, did, were survivors yeah. of sexual assault. Okay, so, um, you know, the next few years, I, r I was really frightened, as you can imagine. Um, I was afraid of being in dark places. I was afraid of coming home alone. I was afraid as I would kind of approach my car in a parking lot. Um, I, I didn't like being out at night. I was suspicious of every man's, you know, you know, look, anybody walking by. I just, I was pretty paranoid and I was just anxious about safety a lot of the times. Interestingly enough, I spoke to two of the victims. One is... I really don't know how helpful this was for this girl, but the girl who had lived in my apartment, I still got her mail. So you could, you could look them up in the phone book and, and call them, and I called her. And I told her who I was and where I lived in um, that same apartment and just asked how she was doing um, and told her what had happened. Also, I spoke to the gr other girl who was my roommate's friend who had lived in that apartment complex, was in Christian ministry, neat girl, and she'd been attacked and, and got to talk talking with her. And where I had been frightened, they were completely traumatized. And, um, I, and as far as I know, you know, I know one in particular moved away to another state. Today, I have friends in my life who've experienced rape. One of my closest friends was raped twice in one night. And she has a a redemptive story to tell. Two young women I know, one was raped a couple of years ago by a stranger on a vacation. She has a child from that assault. And the Lord is writing her redemptive story. And she is walking in joy. Another was raped. Uh, a good friend's daughter was raped a couple years ago. And she is She's a wreck, as, as, as anyone would be. But she is uh, really, really struggling right now. And it, it can write, this is one of those things that could be an event that starts to write your own story. Yeah. And it, my, in fact, I called my, my really good friend literally minutes before we started this service just to say, is there anything that you want to say? And she said, I would say to anybody who has endured any type of sexual assault, you can let that event write your story for you, or you can let the Lord write your redemption story for you. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that has been her case. And so uh, let's talk about what we do. And I want to talk to survivors uh, first. Uh, the temptation, obviously, especially with assault that is done against you, is to 
uh, especially sexual, to uh, feel shame and to want to hide. Uh, it is understandable. And it's also un- not unusual for there to be, of course, fear in speaking out. Uh, fear for yourself, fear for your perpetrator, fear for what if you're wrong, fear for all kinds of things. And of course, as you know, when you're uh, experiencing those uh, level and deep emotions, uh, it you it could be a, it'd be very difficult. But there is a real need with a trusted person to pursue uh, justice and redemption. Um, and uh, you know, I was listening to Rachel Den Hollander, and she said that sexual assault survivors are four to- times more likely to commit suicide, six times more likely to suffer from PTSD, and 26 times more likely to suffer from substance abuse. And she makes the point from research that you can tell where the numbers sharply decline for people that get help and choose to go against some of the internal voices of doing that. And I'm just going to say personally, I'm not going to make this mistake again. And if anybody ever would like to talk to me about that or even for a referral to a personal uh, professional counselors that we have here at the church or others that are specialized in this or even uh, a trusted person in this, we can kind of pull together wisdom and figure out how to handle that in, confi- in confidence. But I'm not going to make that mistake again. I'm not going to commit the sin of omission. It's important for us, though, to, to say what we should do is we should keep coming back to the Bible because there are at least two concepts that are critical here. One is the concept of biblical justice. Uh, this is justice that's rooted in God's law. Tony Evans describes biblical justice as equitable and impartial application of the rule of God's moral law in society. So there's an outside authoritative objective law that we conform ourselves under to seek for justice, and that's critical. Uh, A lot of what you'll see with the hashtags of Me Too and uh, Church Too is the call for justice and sometimes it's biblical in the way what they're calling for, and sometimes it's uh, it, it, somebody doesn't believe in the Bible, and so the, their version or solutions can be different. But, um, but ultimately, what's interesting is a lot of Christians just want to get to the redemption and forgiveness. And we separate these th- things, and that's in part what's happened with the church too movement, is the church thinks wrongly about biblical justice and redemption. Uh, I had a good friend of mine that was a counselor and seminary professor at Dallas Seminary describe forgiveness as taking someone off of your justice hook and putting them on God's justice hook. You're not letting them off the hook, but you're removing yourself from being the judge and you're trusting God and his authority, which includes judges, law enforcement, uh, to be able to, for someone to ex- execute uh, justice that is truly fair and impartial. And so it's important to hold both completely, but to recognize that when we move to forgiveness, we're not asking uh, for consequences to be removed because there's always a second victim or a fifth or a 15th victim that can happen when we commit uh, the sin 
of omission or we simply uh, don't um, do it. It's not good for our health. It's not good for their health. It's not good for anybody long term. So what should we do? We need to address it. And uh, we need to fully embrace what God has to say. I want to talk a little bit about, though, I'm going to let you talk about this in just a second. But what God does here, this is the most important part. Uh, It's interesting, right when David appears to have gotten away with it, we read the very last verse of this chapter. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And even when nobody else sees, God sees. And he moves and acts. And he brings up the number two church leader in the nation to address this uh, with David. Through a very winsome story, Nathan rebukes David. And he raises it up. You know, this is one of the problems that happens in Christian environments, is whoever is the speaker or preacher or uh, someone, a clergy with authority, the other people are like, gosh, if we bring this up, then, you know, people are going to quit listening to us on the Internet. Then the gospel will go forward and all these different things. Well, Nathan shows us what a godly leader does this, uh, in this. So the Lord sent David, Nathan to David. We have no evidence that Nathan knew anything about it except from a revelation from God. He came to him and said, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had brought. And he brought it up. And he grew it with him, with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So he's starting with the story, a metaphor. Look at David's reaction. Verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Godly Christians confront one another with truth and love. And when we don't, We are not forwarding the story of redemption. We are standing in the way of what God desires. But when we stand up and say, you're the man or you're the woman, even in a warm or winsome kind of way, as Nathan did here, we realize the purpose of this is not just discipline, though it is that. You're having to discipline somebody because they're not self-disciplined. Instead, it is about restoration. It reminds me of Galatians 6.1 that tells us, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. And it says, hey, watch out for yourself. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And so God sees. 
And God brings about justice even when nobody else sees. God has a way in his law and in his divine providence to raise up issues that are a violation of, of that. And so what will actually happen here with Nathan after David basically is caught, Nathan says, God gave you all this stuff, and now you've despised his word. You've despised Bathsheba. You've despised Uriah. You're despising God by hurting them. And Nathan actually says, there, this baby that's supposed to be born to Bathsheba, your son, will die on your behalf. That's the way the consequences go. And that, of course, is very much an intentional picture of something of redemption that has. Why don't you tell us the rest? So this story with you, uh, we thought was over. Yes. It wasn't. It was over, as far as I was concerned. And, uh, and, and we are, we're talking about, you know, what God can do um, with an injustice. You know, because like I, I think I was mentioning early, earlier, you can let the assault be the story. Or it can just be a chapter of God's, uh, your story that God is writing of redemption. So... Um, I didn't know back then that this story was going to keep going. So the man went to prison, right? So good riddance, you know, lock, lock him up, throw away the key, you know, whatever. I didn't, I, I was done, right? Everybody was. We all thought we were done. So, uh, you know, I married Chris, and we start a family, and, you know, time marches on. And so, you know, the, uh, you know, the wall comes down and, and countries all change and, you know, the internet comes and we go from landlines to smartphones and, you know, uh, time goes on. And so five children later and six U.S. presidents later, it is summer 2017 and we're reading a book as a family because it's on a book list um, that we have to read for the kids and it is called... Uh, Born Again by Chuck Colson, um, who was one of Nixon's, uh, President Nixon's right-hand men, caught up in the Watergate scandal, got caught, went to prison, as a result started a prison fellowship and, and the Colson Center and, and a lot of things um, since that time. Uh, while I'm reading it, kind of wading through Watergate and learning all about that, because uh, I was a girl at that time, um, learning a lot about prison like prison's awful and the stuff that goes on in prison's terrible and this is one of the few times I think in my walk with the Lord that he was like super clear talking in my heart and he said remember that guy from 30 years ago 30 some years ago you and Chris need to reach out to him and encourage him in the Lord and I just thought that is crazy I've just, I have got to be Anne the Drama Queen coming off of a prison book. That's what it is. I don't, you know how you don't trust. It's like, what is that voice? That is, that's me. I've had pizza. I've done, you know, all the things. And so I, but it was this compelling, compelling, compelling. I don't, some of y'all may know what I'm talking about. I thought that's, A, it's, it's my imagination. 
Um, it's crazy. It's certainly inappropriate. Not going to be doing that. And very scary. No way. Mentioned it to Chris, and he's like, uh, no, we are not doing that. I was like, amen. See, I've got to submit to this guy, you know, that time. So you kind of play that little fast and loose with the Lord on that. Um, so, but this goes on all fall of 2017, this compelling, 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 compelling. I was like, Lord, okay, just you're going to have to give me a sign. And, and that's another long story. But he clearly, clearly spelled out to us, write this guy. By that time, you know me, I, I'm, I'd done my research and I, you know, read police reports and all this stuff that just, I, I, I was as scared almost in 2017 as I was, you know, uh, in the 80s. So finally it was just like, all right. And I, I, you know, and I had made, uh, it's not a mistake when you pray, but I realized that I prayed something I, I didn't even know I meant, but the Lord meant it. And it was like, Lord, I haven't really been doing very well with the least of these and stuff. So it kind of helped me. And I, he took me so seriously. And so anyway, it's funny how he answers prayer. But I, did, he, I knew that this is what we were going to have to do. And I said, Lord, if I did not completely trust you with my life, I would have nothing to do with this. But okay, here we go. So Chris and I both wrote a, a letter. I, I found out where he was. Um, so had been in there all those years. And just pretty much kind of told the story. You know, here's what we thought in the 80s. Here's what the Lord's done um, in our hearts. We know that you don't know us from Adam, nor do we know you. Um, but we've all also committed crimes against the king of glory. And we just want to come and extend a hand of friendship and tell you that the Lord has not forgotten you and so forth. I was just glad to have the letter written. Dust my hands off, mail it. Lord, I was obedient. Let's move on with life. And uh, anyway, we get back a letter about a week later. Seven pages front and back written in pencil from this guy. And he said, I cannot believe that you wrote. He said, I don't hear from anybody in that area anymore. I hardly hear from anybody anyway. And he said, I'm glad that you wrote so that uh, I could tell you about the story then and the story now. And he said, back then, I was in complete and utter bondage. It was demonic. It was sheer madness. And I, I, I did every one of those things and confessed to that. And when I came, he, he, by the way, he had finished his master's. He was working on a doctorate in, um, at seminary when he went to prison. He said, when I went into prison, I could talk to you about Hebrew mood stems and all these words. Honestly, I don't know. Uh, and he said, but I didn't have a prayer life. And so guess what I found in prison was a prayer life and a living, breathing relationship with my father that I had never had before. And on top of that, a revelation of the blood of Jesus Christ for everything I had done and after all the people I had hurt and after making such a mockery of my faith. Um, it, it was just just an amazing, amazing letter, and and it we we learned then and now almost 200 letters later. It's been four years and visits with him that he had confessed and repented and turned fully to the Lord, even praying for his victims, when uh, wishing he could make restitution in some ways because the Lord had so worked on him, and and really I think. I, 
we're, I'm still baffled about, you know, kind of being in the middle of that story, I mean, of how that all came about. Um, I mean, because, and, and we were just talking on the phone. I mean, I never experienced a sexual assault. But I don't know, I don't know, but maybe the Lord had it be where he would allow us to step into a place to get a peek of what God's redemption story looks like in the life of an offender, as well as with my friends, um, the life of survivors. And so um, I do believe I was on the docket to be a victim or a, and one day survivor, but I guess we're just standing in that place now. So that said, let's talk about confession and um, being cleansed by grace. Because we saw, like you, John was talking about David. David was the offender. Bathsheba was the survivor, right? And so God's goodness led David to repentance. And it, he did, um, at the end of Nathan's rebuke, say, I have sinned. And I don't know if y'all know, but Psalm 51 is a psalm of confession and uh, re repentance and a cry to be cleansed by the Lord. And he's confessing and, and crying out for cleansing about that whole Bathsheba situation. And so his confession is in Psalm 51, 1 through 3. Some of those verses there, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And then skipping down to verses um, 10 through 12, he goes on and says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And, you know, when John and I were talking about this, actually, you know, you discovered um, that there in this psalm, there are four mentions of sin in this psalm of confession. But there are 19 references and verbs that refer to God's grace. Isn't that beautiful? And so even in confession, he is reflecting on the grace of God. And so we're seeing the character of God just in that psalm and the fact that God alone only God he goes to to forgive and be cleansed by. One of the early verses that we, 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 we did a Bible memory program when we were kids, but one of the early verses um, that we memorized was 1 John 1, 9, which a lot of people know. Um, and it is, um, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How many have heard that? Okay. Mm -hmm. I don't know why, but until, literally, I realized this week, I have always camped out on the faithfulness of God to forgive and cleanse. It's there, right? But I realized that also when somebody confesses sin, God is just. And his justice includes not only the consequences, but for the one confessing, his justice includes forgiveness and cleansing. And then that's the label that God gives the offender who confesses and repents. 
which is honest. I mean, in this Me Too culture, just even in just even our own hearts, that's sometimes a hard pill to swallow. If a offender, if an offender, repents, because we're not willing to do what God does in terms of forgiving and cleansing, and um, it is a hard pill for, uh, it's particularly for survivors, I think, but for all of us until we realize that we have been forgiven and cleansed ourselves. And there's no uh, differentiation. So so that's thoughts on um, confession. Um, But then, remember what God does with um, David, and ultimately Bathsheba, I'm gonna talk about survivors here in a second too, is restoration. Um, There is the confession, the cleansing, the forgiveness, the cleansing, and now there's the restoration and ministry that follows because restoration ministry can come to the offender. So we found out from the, our friend in prison that when he came into prison, of course, I think I told you he had his master's and almost just finished his doctorates um, in seminary. What happened on the heels of that is he said, I, d- I felt like I had brought such slander to God's name, I would never be used in ministry again. And, and he said, but I know he called me into ministry in college, and I, I guess it's in Romans, it says the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable, and the Lord showed me, you're still going to minister, you're going to minister in here, uh, possibly for the rest of his life, right, so um, he, because he had his credentials, the, his academic credentials, a state accredited prison seminary has been launched, and he is the academic dean He's written all the curriculum for a bachelor's and a master's degree in biblical studies. Um, and it's for people who really just barely, a lot of them just barely have their GEDs. And um, we actually saw him yesterday. Uh, we visited him several times, but our, uh, my husband and two of our sons were with him yesterday. And, and, and when I got this invitation, we couldn't reach him to say, is this okay if we talk about but he was like, please talk about it. He said, the Lord can redeem. He says, the, the offenders who are put away, nobody hears that story. Mm. Now, we know there's offenders who haven't been put away, but God knows that story. Mm-hmm. And that story will be dealt with, mm-hmm. okay? Hopefully to lead to repentance. But anyway, we met yesterday many, many other redeemed men who have come because of the ministry that the Lord used um, in creating that seminary. Um, some of them doing time for the most heinous of crimes. And, and they will likely never get out. Okay, and in God's, God's grace puts them where they need to be. He knows where people need to be. And, and some of them will tell us, and told us yesterday, one guy in particular who was like, I am so glad God stopped me. I could have been killed but he decided to spare my life. And he goes, I'm never gonna get out of here. And, um, but I have found the Lord in such a way. And, and now I'm going, because, and all, this is all their, uh, situ- um, most of the ones we talked to, their situation, because of confession, because of repentance, the Lord is restoring and ministry is now beginning where they are actually held up as an example in the prison system as the place that most change and less recidivism 
happens because of the influence there. It's like this ripple effect of ministry that's come. It's amazing. Resulting, um, a resulting ministry can also come to the witnesses. The funny thing is, you know, y'all, I was such a fluffy bunny. Like, what did I have to do with prison, right? Or, 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 or serial rapists, for crying out loud. You know, but the Lord just used that introduction then to kind of ripple effect where we, um, my husband and I, and now my sons, are doing things like with prisoners. You know, just so we will volunteer and do, COVID's kind of shut some things down, but volunteer and so forth with different things, with different women's ministries and so forth, with letter writing campaigns, with our, you know, helping out with our church that way um, to people. And um, a friend of mine, um, another, another lady, I've raised kids with me, she, she kind of went um, quiet a few years ago. Nobody knew. She kind of fell off the radar. We were like, Is anything, has anybody talked to her? What's, what's going on? I found out about a year and a half ago that her, her husband had committed a sexual offense and he had gone to prison. And she went underground because she just couldn't stand the shame of being associated with that. And just her own struggle, betrayal, and all that that came from that. And I found out, and I, I hadn't talked to her in a few years. I called her up and I said, listen, I just found out. And I'll tell you what, a year ago that would have freaked me out. But I'm not afraid and I don't want you to be alone. So it's so funny how the Lord will take somebody else's heinous thing, the ripple effects of ministry, the ripple effects of uh, ministry to witnesses. Um, so that's been kind of happening in our life. And so for the repentant offender, there is a story of redemption, and we see that in David's life, right? Um, it, it says actually in uh, Psalm 51, verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. And our friend and David, um, who are the offenders, taught and are teaching sinners out of their brokenness. And then there's those on the other side of, justice, of injustice, the survivors. They can teach too. Mm -hmm. Because restoration and ministry can come to the survivor. You know, whereas God can alone forgives and cleanses, he alone can heal. And rather than letting the story dictate the identity and what happens with, with the rest of your life, God wants to step in and, and do the defining and do the writing. Psalm 10, 17 said, uh, says, Oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. Those are our survivors. And you will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. You know, strength and healing came to Bathsheba on the other side of her injustice because she went on to have Solomon and then also to advocate for Solomon. But do you know what? Ultimately, Bathsheba's, Bathsheba's injustice led her into the line of Christ. Led her into the lineage of the Savior of the world. And so in her lifetime, she was able to minister. And because of her life, we are, we are today receiving the ministry mm -hmm. of our Savior who came because 
and injustice brought her in. Today's hurts are tomorrow's ministry. And yesterday's hurts are today's. There are likely some survivors in this room and very well could be offenders as well. And these could be men or women. If that's the case, you can either live forever in the shame and the pain of what happened or come to your healer. Or you can live forever in the guilt of what you did or come to your forgiver and your cleanser. Your defining moment was not the worst thing you ever did. And survivors, your defining moment was not the worst thing that ever happened to you. Your defining moment happened 2,000 years ago on a cross by the blood of the Savior of the world who we celebrate now. So God defines, he defines, and he transforms the offender and the survivor for his mission. And he wants to show you his redemptive story. And he is here to forgive, to cleanse, and to heal you. Mm -hmm. So come to him. Mm -hmm. um, if there's anybody that needs help, we'd be happy to do it. Uh, again, I offer confidential treatment. If you want to create an anonymous email address and sign it anonymous, that's fine. I'll help you find somebody trusted to go there. I'll ask you, did you follow up with them? But uh, we'll help you with that. If, um, But I do think the ultimate question is, who writes your story? And what do you really believe? That God is just, that he provides a way that he uses the most horrible things to create opportunities for redemption. That's what we believe. And I want to invite all of us, ultimately, to submit ourselves to him and his authorship of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, you transform offenders. And you tr transform the story of survivors, survivors to heal and to forward your mission. Father, uh, we come to you today as brothers and sisters of those who have suffered sexual assault, abuse, or even assault. And we ask for your divine providence. You see, we ask that you lead us as we pursue biblical justice and forgiveness. And Father, there are many offenders. We are all offenders. But you brought about David's son, Jesus Christ, who has taken our sin and the punishment of our sin and innocently died on the cross so that we could live. And in our difficult, most difficult places, he is with us in the midst of that. 
And Father, we pray that that defining event of Christ's death and resurrection to save us from our sins and also his power to cleanse survivors of those who did nothing wrong, but his power to purify survivors would present stories of your glorious grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.